0: Welcome to the Jay Martin Show. If you're new to the show, my name is Jay. I'm an investor. I'm here looking for the smartest home for my cash. And today we're doing so by studying the worlds of money and power, two of my favorite things to study, both geopolitics and markets and how they coincide. I often see geopolitical analysts that spend their, their whole life studying international relations. And while very important, if you ignore the world of money and markets, you're missing a lot of context. And simultaneously, if you spend your whole life studying macro finance, but ignore the world of international relations, you're simultaneously missing a lot of context. I I do think you have to do your best to understand both because of how intertwined they are. And my guest today does that for a living and has done that for a living. For a handful of decades, he's been at the forefront of geopolitics and money. His name is David Goldman, and he's a columnist at the Asia Times, among many other things. But for the last few decades, he's been all over the place um, advising, you know, strategy, credit strategy and research at some of the world's largest financial institutions, including, you know, Bank of America and Credit Suisse. He was also an advisor to President Reagan and an advisor to the Department of Defense in the United States. He's been on the front lines of of policy and defense and and geopolitics. Um, Today his publication, The Asia Times, is very renowned as the most objective, non-biased perspective on global events as they're occurring in Asia. And that's what I wanted to talk to you, David, about today. So fascinating conversation. I really got him to begin with his top-down thoughts on the state of the world in terms of the conflicts that we're watching erupt and then we dug into each independently and their relationship to each other. Fascinating conversation. I'm definitely going to have David back. I know you're going to enjoy this one. As always, if you enjoy my content, I publish a weekly essay where I distill what I've learned on this show. It comes out every Sunday. uh, Hit the link beneath this piece of content if you would like to join over 40,000 investors who hear from me every Sunday morning. I love writing my essay and I get phenomenal feedback from all of you. So hit that link if you want to join the team. Now here is David Goldman. Enjoy. All right, here I am with David Goldman. David, it's an honor to have you on the show. Thank you so much for making the time today. My honor entirely, Jay. Thanks for inviting me. So this is a bit of a follow-up from an event that we produced a few months ago called the Crisis and Chaos Conference, myself and my co-pilot, Jonathan Roth. um, And you joined the event for a uh, one-on-one conversation with Jonathan. It was fascinating. I wanted to do a follow-up chat. It's been a few months. Now, that was uh, November or late October. And at that point, we were very focused on the uh, Ukraine, Russia conflict, very focused on the Israel Hamas conflict. And then all of the hotspots that looked like they were worthy of attention, but action hadn't really started yet. And you could look at maybe, you know, Venezuela, Guyana or the South Pacific. But there were a couple other areas that were worthy of attention Uh, since then. Obviously, the Red Sea has erupted in its own way. And even as of this morning, it's February 6th for context. It looks like there was another drone strike on a couple of cargo ships. It's kind of unclear exactly what happened because it was just this morning. But it looks like another um, Houthi drone dropped uh, a bomb or two on a couple cargo ships in the Red Sea. Here's my my first question for you, David when just to frame this global conflict uh from your perspective when you look at the ukrainian russian conflict the israel hamas conflict and the uh, escalation of events in the red sea how would you describe the relationship at this moment between these conflicts and any others that are on your radar
1: there are there's one big conflict in the world which is supremely dangerous between two peer competitors uh, who are contending for number one position in the world. That's the United States and China. And the gravitational pull of that conflict is going to flip all these other ones around to fit into it in some way. So the most important thing happening in the Red Sea at the moment is that the People's Liberation Army Navy has the opportunity to watch in great detail, how the United States responds to missile and cruise missile and drone attacks and take notes and prepare itself for what might, uh, hopefully not, but might uh, erupt in the South China Sea or the East China Sea. Mm. Uh, In the case of Ukraine, uh, the diminution of American power that would ensue from Ukrainian failure, which I, at this point I think is highly likely, uh, would go to the benefit of China. Russia by itself cannot exploit a major setback for the United States. It's simply not big enough. It has 150 million people. It has an economy the size of Italy, which is distorted by massive concentration on defense production and energy. It really doesn't do anything else. At this point, it's dependent on China. So everything focuses on the United States and China. That's the big one. Whatever other people think they're doing, it will feed into that the same way that all the little national liberation fights we had in the 50s and 60s and 70s fed into the Cold War.
0: Mm. Now, I've heard you compare the potential of a defeat in ukraine to being on par with the american defeat in vietnam in the 70s um do you Did i did i capture that correctly and do you still see it that way and maybe elaborate on that uh, if you could. well
1: in some ways it's not as bad we don't have american body bags thank god coming home from ukraine in other ways uh, it's much worse because that affects the core of american influence starting with the end of world war ii namely the nato alliance uh the europeans really didn't care very much about vietnam except for the french who had been kicked out by the um, by the vietnamese communists in the 1950s and their place taken by the united states but all of europe cares deeply about what happens in ukraine and the blowback consequences for nato as an alliance were there to be uh, a catastrophic setback uh, would be really devastating for the United States. Uh, one key thing that's likely to happen, remember, every European government has been prevailed upon by the United States to stick its neck out for the defense of Ukraine uh, in terms of providing arms, financing, and so forth. That war is very unpopular, and those governments are very unpopular, particularly Germany, which suffered a loss of cheap Russian gas and an economic recession. As a result, uh, Olaf Scholz, the chancellor of Germany, has a popularity rating now of 17 percent, and three quarters of Germans say they want his government to resign. Uh, across the border in France, uh, Emmanuel Macron has a popularity rating of I think 23 or 24 percent. So, were there to be a major setback in Ukraine, which I think is likely. Uh, the likelihood that the French and German governments would survive, I think, is small. And their replacement would almost certainly be a more populist, less pro-American uh, peace party approach to Ukraine uh, and a enormous a generational setback for the NATO alliance if indeed the NATO alliance were to survive.
0: Okay. Okay. So just to, to recap a few things to make sure I'm tracking correctly behind all of this, you know, is the real conflict is, is America and China. And a lot of these eruptions are, are either proxy battles or distractions, or maybe in the case of the red sea learning exercises for the PLA among, among other things, not, not saying that's all it is, but, but, um, and if the Ukraine were to collapse in this conflict, um, if I understood correctly, Russia necessarily, not necessarily wouldn't be strong enough to capitalize on that defeat as well as China would, just due to the limited nature of the Russian economy, the population. Uh, but the massive advantage would fall in the hands of the Chinese. And what would occur there? What would the aftermath, did I capture that correctly? And then what would the aftermath of that situation be, David?
1: Uh, if you read what Chinese strategists were saying uh, in the Chinese media, China is not eager to put its own troops on the ground. They're much more, uh, they anticipate a decline of American interest and capability. They say America doesn't have the ability to supply Ukraine, to fight in the Middle East, to arm itself heavily in uh, the West Pacific, in East Asia, that is, and America will simply lose interest and re- and withdraw for the region, and we'll pick up the pieces as we pe- please. Now, for China, that means above all the Belt and Road Initiative, building railways and pipelines and ports across Asia, and economically dominating the the Eurasian landmass. It means getting the Germans and French and other Europeans. Uh, investing in China dependent on Chinese technology. Uh, and it means China dominating the so-called global South, the less developed countries, which are important because in a world of shrinking populations, they're the one important source of abundant manpower
0: uh, for industry mm. for for the now do the demographic challenges in China? Make that thesis, do they expose any vulnerabilities? I mean, it it strikes me Uh, as uh, uh,
1: absolutely China has a declining population. That doesn't, that's not a death sentence, as you know, Peter Zihan and other people have said. It's a problem that dictates a certain kind of solution. If you've got a declining population, there are three things you can do you can either bring in immigrants, as Germany does, but China's not good at that, and they won't. You can increase the productivity of your industry to compensate for the smaller number of workers. That's possible. South Korea did that very effectively in the last generation. And the third thing you can do is export your capital and technology to countries that have young people and make them part of your economic sphere. Japanese have been exporting capital for quite some time. The rest of the world will pay their retirement based on in Japanese investments. If China is not able to do these things, its demographic situation will turn into a catastrophe. If it is able to do these things, it will be able to manage its demographic situation. So from the Chinese standpoint, when the United States says, we don't want you to acquire the most advanced artificial intelligence technologies, the fastest computer chips, and other high-tech The Chinese say they are trying to destroy us because if we don't accomplish this leap into a higher level of productivity, we're Uh dead ducks. So from China's, the way China looks at it, I'm not defending the Chinese viewpoint, but I'm trying to represent it in a clear way. The American attempts to contain China economically represent an existential threat to China's future. And the Chinese think that we have it in for them. Uh that we, I want to qualify. There are certainly some Americans who would like to see China break up and collapse. There are other Americans who would like to see China as a peer competitor and aren't too worried about its development. So there's a very broad range of American opinion. But as the Chinese see it, America is an existential enemy, and anything they can do to weaken us mm-hmm. is good for them.
0: And, and how true is that? I mean, I guess if you're in the, the seat of the current global superpower and you're trying to defend that position for a handful of reasons, China is rising faster than any other nation. They I think I've heard you say they they're manufacturing at present is about three times that which occurs in the United States. The economy is growing very fast and not quite on par, but it's not far to, to be quite honest. Um, their their biggest achilles heel will be their demographic challenges they're not going to solve it with immigration as you mentioned it's probably just not that appealing to immigrate to china but if they can increase productivity per person uh, through technological innovation or export that capital and tech to younger colonies right or or allied nations um that's their key to success so if you're america you you'd want to disrupt those next two bullet points, you know, you're not worried about immigration, but, but uh, you are worried about um, increased productivity per worker, which would surge the Chinese economy or exporting that tech. And so are they, are they correct from just like a un- on strategic standpoint, you know, battleground tactics is America doing the strategic thing here by trying to disrupt China's technology adoption and competency.
1: Well, I think America's policy has two problems. One is trying to stop China from developing, from improving itself, uh, makes China an enemy, which is a dangerous thing. Hmm. And even worse, we are failing to do so. Uh, Machiavelli famously said that if you hurt somebody, you better hurt them badly enough so they can't get up off the ground and come, back, come after you again. And what we've done is to hurt China, but not nearly enough to stop them. For example, I read in the Financial Times this morning that China is about to produce some of the fastest chips in the world, chips with a uh, transistor gate width of 5 nanometers. Uh, The fastest chips are now 3 nanometers, and the Taiwanese and Koreans are trying to get to 2 nanometers, but uh, no one ever thought the Chinese would be able to do that because of the blockade that we put on some of the most advanced chip-making equipment. And what the Chinese did was find a way to jerry-rig older chip-making equipment to produce higher-end chips uh, while we announced a smartphone as well as processor chips last September, uh, which flabbergasted Washington. washed They weren't supposed to be able to do this. Now, it isn't free, My guess is they're spending between half a percent and a percentage point of their GDP every year just to compensate for the technology barriers that we've put up. It's hurt them badly. It's hurt their stock market in a big way. Mm -hmm. Uh, As a rough uh, back-of-envelope guess, I think what they're spending to... Develop independence in their chip industry is roughly equivalent to the whole capital expenditure budget of the Shenzhen 300 stock index. That's like their S&P 500. So it's an enormous burden. But they're able to handle it. And they are succeeding, not catching up with the fastest chips in the world, which we and the Koreans and Taiwanese uniquely make, but fast enough to drive the productivity gains they need in their industry and to drive the kind of exports that give them a dominant position in many parts of the world market. So we've angered them, we've convinced them that we're out to get them, but we haven't stopped them. So I think our policy is has been doubly misguided. Mm. It's given us the worst of all possible worlds where the Chinese now are really out to get us.
0: Right, right. So more effectively, the Americans have created an enemy Uh, more than any dominance over that enemy. And I like the Machiavelli analogy because I think it's very accurate. You know, you don't want to poke the dragon, right? Uh, I mean, I I,
1: I don't think shutting down China's development is something that the United States should do, but if we were going to do it, we should have gone all out Mm -hmm. and really shut them down. The half measures we've took, the incremental measures, have given them the ability to wriggle out of it and uh, do workarounds. Remember, one most important single factoid about China is that, you know, back in 79, uh, when they started the marker reforms under Deng Xiaoping, they started their great uh, run of economic growth, mm-hmm. uh, 3% of that generation went to college. Now it's 63% going to college or trade school. So their rate of tertiary education, education after high school, is about the same as Germany's. And China each year graduates uh, about 1.2 million engineers and computer scientists. Uh, We graduate a bit over 200,000, so it's between five and six to one advantage. That human capital is... Remarkable. And Chinese universities, which 20 years ago were just stupid diploma mills for the most part, with a few exceptions, are now on average pretty good. Maybe not quite as good as our best, uh, but good enough to accomplish the job. So a third of Chinese college students major in engineering. In the United States, it's more like 6%. So their advantage in terms of the human capital needed for these productivity gains is remarkably greater than ours uh that's something we really have to think about in terms of the way our educational
0: system is run that's that's really interesting i didn't i didn't know those numbers but it's very much in line with um with ray dalio's uh framework for understanding the transition of power that we will probably experience you know in my lifetime and in a lot of his books, he he's reviewed the previous four to five empires through the last six hundred years, looking at the Portuguese, the Spanish, the Dutch, the British, and of course now the American, and then identifying, you know, the key determinants that you see every time in the rise to power. And and as I'm listening to you, I'm I'm walking through through those determinants in my mind and you know, determinant number one is almost always alignment of values, right? You have to get a culture that's cooperative because if they're divided and constantly in conflict, they're just degrade into civil war like so many emerging nations do. And as you mentioned, Olaf's uh, approval rating is 17%. Macron's approval rating is 23%. If I'm correct, Biden's right around there, like the most Dislike president in American history. I think that's a true statement from a polling standpoint. And so, if you look at the divisive culture in these Western nations, you, you maybe got to give that point to China, right? For for better for worse, led by a dictator. Oh, I, which I, I I think that cuts both
1: ways. Okay, uh, China is like a different planet. No Chinese has ever set up a Little League association in a small town. No one set up a a sports club or Boy Scouts or anything. Everything in China comes from the government. It's all very Mm. top-down. The concept of civil society, where you go out and do whatever you want, it's the realm of freedom, you start a business, you start a political club, you run for office, doesn't exist in China. The Communist Party is not a stupid organization. It recruits a national merit scholar criteria. So... Generally, the senior people in the Communist Party are very smart. They have 93 million members, and the top ones are the ones who scored very high in exams. But Western individualism has a great advantage when it comes to creativity in business and science. Committees don't invent things. Individuals do. When you give the Chinese a specific task, you tell them, we're not going to let you have seven nanometer chips, which is what you need to run a 5G smartphone. And they say, okay, we know what the specific task is. The way a senior guy at Huawei, a Chinese telecom company, told me, you don't understand us Chinese. We'll put 1,000 engineers on the problem, hmm. And if that doesn't work, we'll put 10,000 engineers on the problem, And they'll get it done. Mm. but inventing new things that nobody's thought of that are completely outside the framework. Mm. They can do that, but Western culture gives us more of a propensity for that kind of innovation. So I don't think we're cooked by any means. I think we have intellectual and moral resources to compete with China in a different way. Uh, But the worst thing to do is give the Chinese a very specific, well-defined task and say, you can't do that. Chances are they'll find a way to do it.
0: Right, because you're essentially pointing the way forward, right? Uh, Identifying the problem that needs to be solved, which is something they've proven quite good at doing. Um, And I I really like that counterpoint because, you know, as I was progressing through, I was thinking, you know, the, the... Divisive nature of Western culture does concern me for a few reasons that we can talk about. But, you know, then what you need to see on top of that is, is a productive population, right? That's incentivized to work hard and, and is rewarded for that hard work. Um, we talked about the manufacturing numbers in China already being 3x what's occurring in the United States. So you could say this is a highly productive country compared to America at present day. You know, I'm not, you know, bigger economy in America, though. So you could argue that either way. But the third determinant is always education does that productive and newly wealthy population reinvest that wealth into education, increasing their competitive advantage generation over generation. Um, and those education numbers are fascinating, essentially identifying a five to one advantage in terms of, um, college educated, uh, youth, uh, engineers, uh, et cetera. Um, so, so, okay. Then I want to, I want to dial back to, uh, the concept that you just explained, because I think it's very interesting and worth spending a minute on, that you can organize a population very effectively with centralized, top-down leadership. But what you lack as a consequence is innovation and entrepreneurship, right? And entrepreneurship is that innovation, innovative muscle that, um, that creates the competitive advantage for an economy. So, you know, I'd love you to share your thoughts on that a little bit, uh, if, if you wouldn't mind, David. Well, it's a matter of degrees. I mean, if you look at
1: uh, the most successful American company of the last 10 years, almost certainly NVIDIA. Yeah. That's the stock we all wish we bought 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah. And the founder of NVIDIA is an ethnic Chinese born in Taiwan, Jensen Wang. Uh, Jensen Wong is probably not that much different from a lot of Chinese engineers with you know a terrific education and brilliant ideas but America would give a Jensen Wong the chance to do something totally different that other people hadn't thought of which is much harder to get done in China now China certainly can innovate there are lots of remarkably effective Chinese innovations. So Huawei is a very innovative company. They may have stolen code from Cisco 20 years ago, uh, but now they spend 25% of their sales, not profits, but sales on research and development. Hmm. Uh, And they certainly have some of the best uh, telecom equipment uh, in the world. They're capable of innovating. I think it's a matter of degrees. We are more likely to foster innovation, more likely to pick up on it, more likely to put capital behind it. So I think our culture has that advantage over China. It's not an absolute advantage, but it gives us an edge. Yeah. Which is to say the Chinese can't innovate is ridiculous. I mean, right. the Chinese invented the printing press, the clock, gunpowder, the magnetic compass. In fact, every element of the Industrial Revolution came out of China as an invention. But when the Jesuit uh, Matteo Ricci came to China in the 17th century, he brought with him clocks. Chinese hadn't, of that generation hadn't seen them before because they'd forgotten what had been invented in China
0: half a millennium before. Yeah, that's a great point. And we're so subject to recency bias when we think about, you know, America versus China or the West versus the East. And, uh, you know, prior to the the century of humiliation, right, Uh, which is like the end of the 19th century until about maybe the 70s, essentially, um, you know, began with the opium wars uh, and and wrapped up more recently. But prior to that, China was a global power that led the world and technological innovation for nearly a thousand years. I mean, the celestial kingdom was the most advanced nation the world had ever seen. Uh, and it wasn't that long ago, you know, but we we forget quite quickly. When you think through big picture, uh, the transition of global power, I mean, you've been at the, the front lines of geopolitics and markets for decades. Do you attach yourself to an outcome? I mean, I find myself thinking through the transition of power. As we've seen it, the puck gets passed, right? As we just mentioned, Portuguese to Spain, Spain to to the Dutch, the Dutch to British, the British to the Americans. And I ask myself, who's next, right? Do you trouble yourself with questions like that? Who's next? Or through your experience studying geopolitics, are you more likely to step back and say, I don't know what happens next, but here's how I can organize my life to make sure I've got good optionality and I'm stable and secure and I can capitalize on opportunity when it arrives?
1: You know, I I briefly advised Governor DeSantis during his presidential campaign. And what I told him is that in my lifetime, we had two American presidents who inspired and uplifted the American people and took the country forward in a tangible way. That was John F. Kennedy with the Apollo program and Ronald Reagan with the victory in the Cold War and the Strategic Defense Initiative. And I urged him to give me a third chance to experience that kind of national revival. A lot of people in the 1970s thought the United States was finished. Uh, Henry Kissinger famously was quoted saying that he thought the Russians would win the Cold War. And there were a lot of very bright people who believed, uh, who were betting on Russia back then, particularly in Europe. And Reagan and his team completely confounded them. So I don't write off the United States, but the trend is against us. I think if we had the kind of leadership that took a JFK or Reagan kind of approach, our inherent advantage in innovation uh, would avail us. But right now, we are losing to China, uh, and I don't like it. I don't like the Chinese system. I like the American system. I respect the Chinese for what they've accomplished and their dedication and hard work, but I don't like top-down systems. I'm a bottom-up kind of guy. Mm -hmm. So at the moment, the Chinese, with their enormous advantage in technical manpower, are taking over one major industry after another. Uh, They completely dominate solar panels. By 2030, China is going to produce as much solar energy as they do now by coal. That's an astonishing accomplishment. They're never going to replace fossil fuels entirely. There's only so much surface area where you can put solar cells. Uh, they dominate electric vehicles. Donald Trump said we should keep electric vehicles out of the United States because if it's EVs, they're all going to be made by the Chinese, and he's right. Hmm. I just read a commentary in... Uh, Bloomberg today saying, we've got to go to the Chinese and ask them to share their EV technology with us if we hope to have an auto industry. And the auto industry is the largest industry in the world by far. Uh, There's now uh, considerable fear, and you read articles about this in all the major newspapers, that because of China's massive investment in the lower end, of uh, semiconductors, they will dominate the market for so-called legacy chips, the older generation chips. But that's the vast majority of the market; and it's more than half of the sales of the TSMCs and Samsung. So, if China built up enough capacity and dominates that lower end of the market, they could very well put a lot of our companies out of business before they eventually get control of the higher end of the market. So. It's not just that they can, that their manufacturing is triple hours. They're putting a massive and concerted effort into high tech areas, which uh, will give them control of the next generation of technologies. Automated factories are a marvel. Uh, I, for example, take uh, telecommunications, single most important piece of infrastructure around the world. I visited a plant of Huawei. Last summer, in Shenzhen, which produces 2,400 5G base stations per day in a year, that's a quarter of the world's installed capacity. They produce them like popcorn. And there are 40 people on the assembly line doing that. It's all robotics, all automated, except for a few minor functions. The Chinese claim to have a factory that can produce 1,000 cruise missiles a day. Hmm. Our total inventory of anti-ship missiles is four to 5,000 in the United States. So Hmm. if that's true, the Chinese in a week Mm -hmm. can equal our inventory. Uh, That doesn't bode very well for American military dominance. And the Chinese are also doing some impressive things in air-to-air missiles and other military technology. So... The amount of effort the Chinese are putting into artificial intelligence applications and other kinds of industrial automation in manufacturing dwarfs ours. I'll give you an example. Uh, 5G is, can be very useful for industrial automation. You can you, you can wire up your machines to each other, but it's kind of hard to move things around. 5G doesn't have wires that you trip over when you're reconfiguring your factory floor. Uh, and you can use that to transmit thousands of pictures, an hour to an AI algorithm that will help you do preventive maintenance or check quality control on a conveyor belt and, and so forth. Huawei tells me they have 10,000 industrial customers for private 5G systems for industrial productivity applications. A few weeks ago, I spoke to the sales team at one of the big three uh, telecom providers in the U.S. So I won't mention which one off the record. I said, how many customers do you have right now? Huawei said they've got 10,000. They said, well, right now it's kind of aspirational. I said, by aspirational, I mean you don't have any customers. They said, well, that's right. We're hoping to get some. Hmm. Now, the big three auto companies, Ford, uh, 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 well, Ford Motor and uh, you know Fiat Chrysler, do have such systems. But the auto companies are as much Chinese companies now as they are American companies. General Motors some years sells more cars in China than in the U.S. Uh, Besides those guys and John Deere, I don't know anyone who's doing Chinese-scale industrial automation. Our manufacturers simply are not doing it because they're not buying the telecom the communications infrastructure. That would be required for it. We've got a few outstanding examples of flex manufacturing, you know, robotic automation, but they're mostly experimental or small scale. The Chinese are way ahead of us mm. and that could worry us because not just the economic, but also the military ap- implications of that are huge. Yeah, now, if they can produce a thousand cruise missiles a day, and they decide to, they decide to let them get into the hands of the Houthis, what does that mean for us? An American destroyer carries one hundred anti ship missiles. It also has Gatling guns, which can and did, in one case, destroy a missile a mile or two away. That gets mm-hmm. kind of dangerous. Wow, but their supply of ammunition is very limited. If the Chinese can. Flood the world with cheap anti-ship missiles. We simply run out of ammunition and anti-missile systems to protect ourselves, which, mm. by the way, is basically what's happening in Ukraine right now. They're simply running out of air defense systems. So these cheap Iranian drones that the Russians sent at them, which they used to shoot down nearly 100% of, a lot mm. of them are now getting through and destroying infrastructure.
0: Right yeah I I feel like for for maybe just my generation or maybe just me personally you know these recent conflicts have been a wake-up call that we still very much live in an age of artillery when it comes to hot war and and maybe we've been led to believe that's the past it's the information Wars that will rule the day but you know again I heard you say 70 percent of the casualties in the Ukraine are directly from artillery this is still how we settle Feuds eventually, yes, right.
1: But remember that there's a high tech element because you've got computer controlled Mm -hmm. artillery, which is very accurate, which is runs on a live feed from drones. Mm -hmm. So you have a drone that locates a target, sends coordinates to their artillery crew that can input them in a minute or two. So, when you, so when on either side, this is true of the Russians as well. If you see a drone above you, you better get out of there in about 60 seconds because in 90 to, you know, 180 seconds, you're going to have an artillery shell come down in your head. Unless, of course, the drone is a, doesn't do that itself. You've got armed drones also. So, it's the linkage of new technologies. Ah, uh, particularly reconnaissance, communications, and targeting, to old artillery tubes, yes. which make this war so devastating. Yeah, uh, it's the first war where there's no possible maneuver because you can't surprise anybody. Everyone can see all the battlefield in real time all the time.
0: Right. Okay. I want to I want to pull on that thread in a minute uh, because there's something there when it comes to surveillance and visibility that we could we could talk about. But prior to that, I want to go one layer deeper. So, you know, we we talked about the manufacturing advantage. We touched on China's concerted effort to control many high tech areas, 5G EVs, chip manufacturing, et cetera. One layer deeper from that would be control of the raw materials required to build that stuff. Right. None of that can happen without the ingredients. And the world's woken up to this. You're seeing countries like Indonesia, uh, world's largest uh, nickel exporter, begin calling for an OPEC-style syndicate that w- would maybe control the supply of critical metals. You could assume they're talking about copper as well in addition to um, all sorts of rare earths. Who would you at this point in time give the advantage to when it comes to control of the raw materials? I mean, the key ingredients that everything else is built on top of.
1: Well, 10 years ago, China exported about twice as much to developed markets as it did to the global south. As of last year, China exported more to the global south than to all developed markets combined, U.S. Europe plus Japan. So although China is not pursuing a classic imperial policy of sending in soldiers and occupying countries and creating puppet governments and so forth, administering countries, its influence in uh, Africa and uh, Southeast Asia and other uh, Latin America, other key sources of raw materials, exceeds ours. Uh, China has taken a great deal of its trade surplus, which is $500-$700 you know, hundred billion dollars a year, and plowed it back into development loans nice. to the so-called global south. They've lent out something like a trillion and a half dollars. They lend more in Africa. I think their commitment of capital is... Roughly five times that in the United States. And it's bigger than the multilateral lending institutions like the World Bank and International Finance Corporation. So China certainly has an advantage. It's not an absolute advantage because if you're an African country with a lot of lithium, you'll sell the lithium to the highest bidder. Uh, you don't have an obligation to sell it to the Chinese. The Chinese can use their influence extensively, but it's not an absolute kind of control. Uh, fortunately or for, fortunately or unfortunately, the Chinese are a very different kind of empire than the United States or the British or the Belgians or, or, or the Romans. They've never wanted to occupy countries. They want countries to pay tribute. And the form of this tribute is to be locked into Chinese technology and dependent on Chinese imports and obligated to sell the products that China wants. So Mm -hmm. I think we still have a good deal of maneuvering room. In the case of rare earths, for example, we could probably get everything we need out of Australia. The main problem with rare earths is not that you can't find them, it's that the processing cost is enormous and the capital commitment is huge. Uh, If we put the capital into it, we could certainly replace China as a source of rare earths. The problem we have is our reluctance to commit capital. Uh, the U.S. government does not want to be a major investor, and American investors have learned since roughly 2000 that uh, the way to make money quick is to sell software where the marginal cost of adding a customer is zero mm-hmm. as opposed to producing something tangible, which is big and expensive and noisy and stinky. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and i'm I'm curious if we're seeing a shift like a more pragmatic approach to capital allocation um because mining is inherently a, a dirty business but a, a very necessary one and, and quite frankly the standards of care in the west are just dramatically higher than what you see coming out of china and chinese-owned mining companies um that doesn't mean people are going to take that step you know uh, unprodded we we touched on the lack of the ability to surprise in today's warfare because everyone's got visibility everywhere. What's your take on um, maybe Dr. Pippa Malmgren's coverage of satellite warfare that's been occurring behind the scenes for 10 years plus, but doesn't get a lot of media attention because it's in deep space, it's hard to wrap your mind around the fact that satellite warfare is actually a thing. And at the end of the day, there's no bodies to report on and the media likes things that bleed. So that's where the coverage goes. It goes to the boots on the ground, um, Russian invasion, not the satellite warfare that's been in play for many, many years already. How, How significant is this? Are you paying attention to it? And do you have any thoughts or comments, David?
1: Uh, my friend Branton Weichert wrote a very good book a couple of years ago called Winning Space, uh, which I recommend. Uh, anti-satellite missiles have been around since uh, the late 2000s. I think 2007 was the first time the Chinese shot down one of their own satellites as a test with a missile. So we know satellites are vulnerable. Uh, they're vulnerable to each other. You can have attack satellites. They're vulnerable to Earth-based missiles. Uh, The tendency on the part of all militaries has been to proliferate large numbers of small satellites instead of relying on a few big ones. Um, And that's partly a defensive measure. It's a dispersion technique. Exactly how vulnerable American and Chinese satellites are to each other or to each other's countermeasures uh, is uh, a military secret that I don't have access to. Mm-hmm. It's certainly something to watch. The Chinese on their. It also depends where we're talking about. If you're talking about your home coast, you don't need satellites. You can use high altitude balloons. Mm-hmm. You can use you know, put up thousands of them. They're very cheap, uh, and you can do overlapping coverage. So, in the stratosphere, they can you know merge their pictures together. Chinese have a system of balloons like that on our coast. We've done it too. That's an, that's an advantage to the Chinese because nobody, at least I hope not, nobody's thinking about fighting a war close to the American coast. If there is any war, it would be close to the Chinese coast where they have the home theater advantage. So in a contest of the United States versus China over satellite war, Chinese have a lot more missiles, and they also have the ability to cover, they can do recon and com off uh, high-altitude balloons as an alternative satellite. So I think my guess is the Chinese would come out better in terms of satellite war in a conflict in their home theater. But that's just a guess. That involves information I don't have access to. Yeah. Okay.
0: No, I I appreciate that. maybe to uh to close the loop on this conversation i'd, I'd ask you to this next question given everything we've discussed uh would you qualify us today as being in the new cold war the next cold war already already in the new cold war or are we already in the early stages of something worse like world war three and have we begun down that path already, or are we still just in an economic competition? Right, and those two uh, those two claims are just a bit too dramatic for what's really occurring right now on a on a global scale. What what's your
1: take? Oh, thank God we're not in World War Three, and there's no reason for World War Three to occur. Okay, I like that. We're thousands <laughs> of miles away from China. A trigger for World War Three could be. A declaration of Sovereignty by Taiwan, supported by the United States. In hmm. that case, China would probably blockade Taiwan. The United States might try to break the blockade. China might sink a few American ships, and then you might get the kind of escalation that Admiral Stavridis described in his uh, thriller book, uh, 2034. Uh, that could happen very quickly, and it's dangerous. So the best way to avoid that is keep the Taiwan sovereignty issue off the table. Just kick Mm. it down the road. Yeah, okay. Uh, We are in a certain kind of Cold War with China, without any doubt, but it's a different kind of Cold War than we had. Uh, We imported virtually nothing from Russia. During the Cold War, Russia imported some food from us occasionally, but our economic relations were de minimis. Mm. Mm -hmm. Our economic relations with China are gigantic. Yeah. Uh, The United States at this point could not run easily without Chinese imports, and it's not just computers and smartphones and circuit boards. Most of the transformers and capacitors and other workaday products that we use for the American electric utility industry are made in China. We simply stopped making them. Now, we could reinvest to make them, but we couldn't do it quickly, and if China for whatever reason were to cut off those parts, our electricity grid would become unstable for lack of spare parts. So the amount of money we'd have to spend not only to build plants, but to train workers to replace Chinese goods that we now import would be, we are talking about hundreds of billions of dollars. Um, it's simply not realistic to do this in the short term. For example, if we want to produce more to reduce imports, we've got to buy more capital goods, goods that produce goods. We now import more capital goods than we produce at home. So if we want to produce more, first we have to import more. And that involves either importing from China or importing, or importing from countries that depend on Chinese supply chain, so indirectly or directly. Right. Yes. importing from China. I, I was at a coupler before decoupling was cool. I <laughs> argued for investing to reduce these dependencies. Uh, I think I first published something about this uh, on the op-ed page of the Wall Street Journal in 2015. Now, so nine years ago. Uh, but we've gotten more dependent over time, not less. And it's, uh, it's just fantasy to say we could turn a switch and stop importing from China. Yeah, uh, I, I've heard, though, of course, he hasn't said it, that Donald Trump wants to put a sixty percent tariffs on Chinese imports. I personally doubt that because it's a crazy idea. Um, I am strongly in favor of an aggressive program to restore American manufacturing, but we have to remember that we, we're so far on the hole; we've let things slip so badly. We can't turn a switch and change things overnight. This would be at best a five to 10 year um, uh, process with uh, everything going all
0: out. Now our biggest shortage would be industrial workers. Mm. Now, I, I just have to ask you a question off of this. So is there a trade-off there, though? Because the decoupling argument makes sense. You remove your dependence or reduce your dependence on uh, on Chinese supply chains and manufacturing. Independence is good, right? Independence is strong. That's important. But maybe globalization and the entanglement of our economies is kind of what's forcing the peace right now because we can't we can't decouple overnight. So we're forced to find a way to get along despite you know both countries having these red lines, Taiwan being China's that we're kind of close to, right? Maybe closer than we want to be. And the well, reason- I
1: Sure, let's take one example where we actually are doing something. That's the CHIPS Act and the production of semiconductors domestically. Now, that's taking a lot longer than we figured. Uh, TSMC was supposed to have a plant up and operating this year in Arizona, and now it'll be next year, maybe year after, and they can't find the skilled workers, can't find the infrastructure. It hasn't gone very well. TSMC (coughs) has told us that the chips it makes in Arizona are going to cost us 40% more than the chips they make at home. It'll cost us money to produce at home. And that would be true in almost every industry where we've substituted for Chinese direct or indirect imports. Now, why should we do that? In the case of chips that go into military use, I think they ought to be produced in secure plants with a security clearance for the janitor and, you know, badges to get it, you know, eye retina checks to get in because it's easy to tinker with the chips and and wreck them, put a time bomb in. them. So uh, for some security functions, a critical infrastructure, I don't care how much it costs, but for the average chip that goes into a smartphone, is that really, It does it really matter if we produce it in Arizona Mm. Or in Taiwan, is that really the best use of our capital? I'm not going to answer the question, Mm. but the fact is we can't afford to do everything ourselves. Nobody can. Even the United States can't. Even China can't. So where are the trade-offs and how do we do things to our best advantage? I want to be independent of China. I want to de-risk, but we also have to do it in a way that works and doesn't end up hurting us more than it helps us this the economics and particularly industrial policy or have more own goals than the whole history of football Mm
0: -hmm. right i i like that because you're correct it's obviously not a binary discussion right let's just decouple entirely or globalize entirely obviously not obviously not uh far more nuance uh to be applied look david i i want to uh I want to thank you for your time today. This has been a uh, super well, enlightening. Jay, pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Yeah, it's been been a blast. Where can I, if people want to hear more from you, where should I point them today? AsiaTimes.com. AsiaTimes
1: uh, the, is the premier English language, Asian website. Uh, we get the highest marks for objectivity. Mm. We try to report stories as they come without bias we are neither pro-Chinese nor pro-American, but exactly the opposite.
0: love that. I love that. Um, and uh, and I'm a big fan. So, yeah, I appreciate that. And Thank I'll you. make sure we include the link beneath this piece of content, both on YouTube and on the podcast, depending on how you're consuming it. But thanks again, David, for your time today. I'd love to do this again, you know, six months down the road as, as sure. things develop and get an Let's update do from it. you. All right. Thank you. Thank you. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor, follow or subscribe to this podcast, drop me a rating and review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.